Hello, everybody, and welcome into another episode of Commitment Issues. Again, just me and Rob Cassidy. Some might say this is the best way the podcast goes when uh, we're without Woody Womack. Rob, how are you feeling today? I feel a little bit brighter, you know, birds chirping, sun shining. You know, there's not an angry uh, Aryan looking dude during on everybody's parade here. So, you know, I can actually yeah. be myself to be the optimistic, fun loving guy that I am. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it seems like there's fewer storm clouds out my window right now. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, Rob, but my <laughs> we'll, we'll see if I can make it through this uh, this podcast on my phone. It's been losing its charge rapidly ever since the announcement of the Rivals Camp series. Phones ringing off the hook. Lots of uh, lots of people interested in that. Has has that been your experience too? Yeah, you know how many times I get these you know these coach calls. Yeah, uh, about them camp invites. <laughs> oh my god! All right, uh. <laughs> just just, uh, just just to make sure that I, I say it the right way, it's the three stripe camp series. Uh, presented by Adidas. We now have a new partnership there, so let's give them a quick plug. Also, be sure to follow us on all of our social media outlets. Of course, I'm at Rivals Krug City on Twitter, Rob at Cassidy underscore Rob, and Rivals Woody if you're interested in the uh, uh, you know host emeritus, I guess, <laughs> this podcast. The, the absentee host. Right, it rivals Woody. So, uh, and, and and speaking of Woody, he gave us a pretty good roadmap of things to talk about on this week's edition. Uh, and you know, so let's just dive right in. I guess maybe the big story coming out of signing day, not something that any of uh, any of us probably could have predicted, and that's the Kansas Jayhawks really uh, storming the storming the gates of the recruiting world and picking up a ton of uh, high profile commitments, especially out of Louisiana. I know they got their quarterback for the 2018 class in my neck of the woods here in, in Texas, is Clayton. Too but really the the more high profile guys all coming from Louisiana uh, and and you wrote a story about that Rob uh, this past week as well uh, talking a little bit about you know what all went into that so you know let's just uh, let's just kind of break it down you know state the names and, and players and uh, you know and we'll just kind of unpack it from there yeah so by all accounts the impetus of all this is Mike Lee who you know went to KU last year graduated high school early was a freshman all-american there uh, had a really great season and happens to come from one of these power high schools in New Orleans in Landry Walker. Uh, combine that with Kansas's running back coach, Tony Hull, who has some background recruiting the New Orleans area. Uh, so Hull and Lee, kind of a perfect storm develops here where the coaches or whatever, for whatever reason, are down in LSU in that area of the country. Uh, and they're able to land a couple five stars and Devonta Jason, not five stars, four stars and Devonta Jason and, and, and Corleone Harris from Louisiana then, you know, maybe 12 hours after that, they land another four-star out of, out of Louisiana, out of New Orleans, and Jamar Chase. And nobody can really believe that it's happened. And, of course, the, the reaction from LSU fans and, you know, fans of KU's rivals are, well, they're never going to sign those kids. And, and be that as it may, who cares if they do? Uh, you know, it's still impressive. I mean, they, if they do sign them, great. If not, the way I look at it is it's kind of – notched their belt, right? I mean, there's a reason that Tony Hall, who landed these kids, immediately gets promoted uh, to associate head coach there in Lawrence. Uh, it's because it's whether or not they decommit or not, it's made it at least a little bit cooler to go to KU. And granted, you're not really starting at a very high floor in that situation for a team that, you know, has only won six games in the last three years or whatever it is. Uh, but, you know, it is momentum and I think it's notable. And I think that people that aren't fans of Kansas or don't really understand Big 12 football will be quick to dismiss this story as, oh, you know, it's a year until signing day, who cares? But, you know, it, it, perception is everything in recruiting, as we say so many times on this show. Uh, and I think it does matter. And I think it will, it'll provide, I mean, it can't hurt going forward, no matter how this story turns out. 
Yeah, you know, we were ta- we were talking before this podcast got started. We're like, man, I hope we could think of enough things to say about every- everything on the rundown. But you know, now that I'm starting to, you know, think about all the things that I can think about in regards to this and the other things that we have coming up, other topics to talk about, we might end up bouncing around a little bit here because I guess I guess the first couple things I want to say about it is we've already seen uh, Harris and Jason uh, previously committed to LSU, correct? And then they've decommitted once yes. already. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll, and I guess we'll touch on that in a little bit. Uh, we've, we've seen this past year, we've seen Kansas have a pretty strong recruiting class coming out of the gates in 2017. And then, like you mentioned, uh, as we got down the stretch, you know, a number of those kids decommitted, committed elsewhere. They did retain uh, four-star Dominic uh, Williams out of the Frisco area at running back. He was their only four-star in the class this past uh, this past go-round. But, you know, I, I, playing devil's advocate, let's say these guys stick. Uh, you know, Jamar Chase is obviously a very good receiver, too, that we've seen in a couple of our events. You know, you pair them with, uh, you know, Dom Williams and then a, a, a running back who we just mentioned, and Clayton Toon, who I think is a very capable quarterback. He uh, injured his knee in the playoffs last year, but assuming he bounces back from that well uh, and and it ends up being the player that they think uh, he can be. I mean, this is an opportunity for kids. And, and again, you know, the kids that had been committed in 2017 that didn't stick. I mean, the main selling point for Kansas, and like you said, is the floor is set kind of low for these high-profile kids to come in there and immediately compete for a legitimate starting position, a prominent role in that offense. And truthfully, a team that I thought, you know, made a lot of games interesting last year, even though they didn't win a lot of them within the Big 12. Yeah, I think there are certain things you have to do if you're a program like Kansas. And this goes for any number of programs kind of in that vein, you know, that are kind of not located on top of giant recruiting hotbeds like Florida or Texas or California, but, you know, kind of floating around out there and maybe don't have, you know, the Michigan pedigree or the Ohio State pedigree that draws kids in from all over the country is hire young coaches, see uh, Hull, Tony, and BD, David, um, and recruit in in these hotbed areas and do it with your young coaches and do it with a kind of cool thing that appeals uh, to kids. And Kansas has done that here. And, you know, I think it kind of shows that if Kansas can convince these guys from Louisiana who have legitimate options to go to schools where it would be a lot easier to go and win right away away, uh, to come to KU, then anybody can do it, right? And it doesn't seem like a complicated formula, (laughs) to be honest. Uh, And a lot of schools, I feel like, are hesitant to go that way because maybe they think they're better than hiring young coaches or, or whatever, but this works. It's not just been proven in Kansas. And like I said, if they don't get these kids, so what? Uh, there's, I mean, it, obviously you'd like to retain them, but this still represents momentum no matter what. And I think represents uh, kind of a shift in perception of what Kansas football is. Yeah, and in the in the short term, definitely bring some attention uh, to what they've got going on out there. I think you know one of the things you know we always talk about Oregon playing up the uniform card or Maryland. We see what they do with uniforms. You know, Kansas don't sleep on Kansas. Hey, our aforementioned uh, you know new corporate partner in Adidas really does some interesting things with their look out there on the football field. Um, well, kind of yeah, mixes yeah, things let's, up. Let's discuss that. I I think Kansas could have great uniforms. Uh, they've got a great color scheme. When they roll those helmets out with the K and the U on them, I love them. Uh-huh. When they oversize the bird and put it on the helmet, it looks – I just think it's a bad look. It looks like a Pop Warner that. team or something. right? I'm out on the oversized bird on the helmet. Uh, but they do have a great color scheme, and the actual uniforms themselves are fine. But some of those helmets I think are washed. What, uh, what about just the bird head? What if we just went with the head of the bird? I think they did that for a while. Uh, oh, did they? A, long, a while ago. Um, yeah, I like that a little bit better. I, I just, there's something about the aesthetic of that, that bird being that big on the helmet. 
uh, that, that I think is weird. <laughs> so, and, and finally, just to kind of wrap things up here, I guess, with Kansas on the recruiting front, we talked about Coach, uh, you mentioned Coach Beattie and the, you know, the effect that he's had there. Obviously, you know, the appeal to bringing him in, uh, you know, I remember was his ties to the Texas high school uh, coaches landscape. Obviously, he's been able to get a couple of kids out of Louisiana last year, uh, recruited well, I guess, in Louisiana, relatively speaking, uh, last year, and obviously comes out with this group to start uh, this recruiting cycle. But at the same time, you know, like we said, the win totals haven't necessarily been there. So where do you kind of strike the balance between what you said, uh, enthusiastic young coaches recruiting well, but, you know, the wins taking place on the field? I mean, how, how much more – this is year three of the, uh, you know, the the process with him. I mean, how, how much more slack does he have, do you think? Well, I think he's got to win, you know – not he doesn't have to do anything. They're not going to fire him. They're in no position to fire him. So he doesn't really have to do anything. But I think mm-hmm. if he wants to keep inspiring optimism, he's got to win three Big 12 games this year. And to understand Kansas football right now, you have to understand where Kansas football came from, I think. Charlie Weiss left this program. The way he recruited, Nick, he recruited so many junior college players. Even the numbers to rebalance the roster, even just to do that, uh, is not going to be easy. has not been easy. Uh, he really left the cupboard kind of bare. Uh, he took, I think there was a class, and don't quote me on this because I don't have it in front of me, where he took something like some somewhere around the neighborhood of 20-some JUCOs. Uh, yeah, and he just skewed the scholarship numbers in an effort to save his job. I mean, I understand why he did it. I'm not faulting him. He had to win right away too. It didn't end up working out for him, but it did not help the long-term future of Kansas. Uh, so when you see on the surface that Beattie took over this program that was downtrodden and struggling, that was true, yes. But if you pull back the curtain even a little, and uh, it, it's even worse. I mean, when he took over, mm. the fact that he took that job, uh, even being an assistant, was pretty impressive to me. And I, you know, I think he's done a fine job there so far. All right. So lots of hey, Kansas fans. Guess what? Welcome, welcome to the show. Finally, I'm. We're excited to talk about you. A lot of a lot of enthusiasm. A lot of excitement going on with the program. Uh, and they don't have know, to see Woody, right? We bring them in for the first episode that they'll probably ever listen to this because this is the first time they've talked <laughs> about their team and there's there's no Woody. So they're going to think well, the show is like happy. You know, if we had if we had faithful Jayhawks listeners, you know, they I'm sure they they've kind of shut us out at your point constantly talking about Kansas State anyway. So so now they've got their <laughs> moment in the sun. <laughs> maybe maybe so. So moving on and you know, again, playing off the assistant coach theme, uh, you know, let's talk about some of those assistant coach moves. Uh, you know, Woody has it down here as totally screws kids. What will happen after early signing period? <laughs> so, I guess that's acting under the assumption that uh, you know this is this early signing period that we've all been talking about is going to go through, which you know has pros and cons, I suppose, depending on which school you're talking about. So, in the context of how it's on the rundown, do you have uh, an opinion on that? Because I because we can go into individual assistant coaches after and kind of you know kind of talk about their impacts at the respective schools they're going to, but globally or generally speaking as far as you know what it means for for kids in an early signing period do you have a, a opinion about that yeah I mean you know my opinion on recruiting in general is that it's kind of like a hunger games to me I don't I'm not one of these people that bemoans kids were decommitting or coaches were doing this everybody knows the stakes in this game man uh yes they're kids but they are football players that have followed this process with their friends and everybody else they know uh, that, you know, the best mantra when you're going through this is Stone Cold Steve Austin's mantra of DTA, man. Don't trust anybody ever, 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 ever trust anybody. 
Uh, they will lie to you. Their jobs are on the line here. Of course, they're going to lie to you. Of course, they're going to stay around and leave. You have to expect it almost. So mm-hmm. I, I, I don't I have a hard time getting mad at either side. Like when fans want to moan about, oh, this kid left us my team in the lurch because he decommitted uh, an hour before signing day or whatever. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you knew the stakes here. So did the coaches. So I think it's only fair play to look at the other side of this. And it's like these kids have to know that they're being lied to at every turn, right? I mean, nobody's naive in this situation. Uh, at least they shouldn't be. There's enough information out there on the internet to figure out that everybody is full of crap all the time. Uh, so I don't feel <laughs> I don't feel particularly bad for anybody, to be honest. Well, you know, and I and I don't know how uh, how this is going to make me sound. It's kind of like a you know, not not quite an old fuddy-duddy uh, rule of thumb, but you know, I mean, when people say commit to the pro, you know commit to the school and not the coaches, I mean, you know, that sort of holds water when you're talking about this uh, sort of scenario. I mean, if you take a, if you take a visit to a school and you like the vibe out there and you like the campus and you know you feel you feel like that's a good fit for you personality-wise as an individual outside of football, you know, maybe that should start holding a little bit of water. I mean, you know the you know, the one question, though, that we all have to ask as reporters covering recruiting is which coach is, you know, having the closest relationships with the kids that we're interviewing at the time, though. So, I mean, that does factor into things. You can't discount that. I mean, in a lot of cases, especially when you're talking about schools from out of state recruiting kids, uh, you know, their one thread or their common bond to that school for the majority of the time they're getting recruited is the assistant coach that they deal with on a consistent basis. So, or coaches. So, you know, I know, uh, you know, just coming back as we've, you know, as we've gotten through signing day and we've been to a couple events already and talked to a couple of kids and we're seeing a lot of these 2018 kids start to get offers immediately. You know, a lot of them come from coaches that uh, had recruited them. You know, I, the one name that comes to my mind immediately is uh, uh, Grant Hurd from Ole Miss, I believe, uh, was the wide receiver receivers coach now at Indiana. I mean, basically every kid that he offered uh, to Ole Miss immediately picked up an Indiana offer. And that was, you know, that does a couple things, both for, you know, both for the program and for the kid, it, you know, gives the kids a look at a different school that wasn't recruiting them and, you know, builds, you know, builds that relationship uh, with, you know, I guess in some cases, maybe a higher caliber of player than Indiana was recruiting despite, uh, you know, their, you know, relative success this past season. So, you know, I mean, there's, you know, it's it's just going to be part of the the process. I mean, it's all, it was go- it's going to happen no matter what, what, regardless of timing, early signing period. If a coach is going to move, he's going to immediately dip into the well that, um, you know, that he was in before he made that move, right? Yeah, unless he moves, unless he moves to a much bigger well. You know, if you're coming from uh, East Carolina. <laughs> and you're taking a job at Texas or something, uh, you're not going to want to go right. back to that East Carolina well. But yeah, otherwise, if, if the move is the opposite, 100%. Uh, I don't blame them for it. It's, there's no rule in place. It, it, this is what it'll come back to for me. It's really easy for people like us and for fans to be like, oh, what a scumbag. I can't believe he would do this to a kid and leave the kid in the lurch when it's like, your salary doesn't depend on winning games. His does. Uh, if maybe if yours did, you'd look at this a little different, right? I mean, I know right. what I would do to keep my job. And, you know, I like you, Nick Kruger, but, and I probably wouldn't kill you. But if they were like, look, man, you got to stab Nick in the thigh to keep your job. I would oh, yeah. think long and hard about, about taking a state knife and putting it inside of you, man. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm dog eat dog, baby. Well, just as long as, you know, you steer clear of that femoral artery, I suppose we could probably work something out. I, think. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'll call you ahead of time if that situation ever comes up. You know, I I watched a uh, and this is a this is a, a premature rant and recommendation, but last night or one of these past couple nights before I was, 
you know, doing something where I could unconsciously have a, a movie going on on Netflix while I was doing something. And uh, I, I watched the movie Cheap Thrills on Netflix, which uh, could kind of sort of play into that scenario that we just talked about. Um, and I, I recommend it. It's a recommendation. Wait a minute. It's so, a movie uh, about a coworker having to stab his other coworker with a steak knife to keep his job? Well, I mean, not not quite but pretty close and uh yeah it, you know who's in it is and I, i'll never remember the guy's name but it's the guy that was the sportscaster and anchorman that said whammy and he's been in a bunch of stuff you know him oh yeah 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 so he's one of the main characters and then it's uh, a couple of other unknowns but it's a very entertaining movie uh, it, it sounds like one of those netflix movies man where it's like i don't really know anybody that's in this or where it came from or when it came out but it just appeared on netflix kind of thing right yeah, right I but it, i mean very enjoyable. Okay, so so moving on, uh, you know, moving on from the <laughs> boy, geez. So from going from a positive to a medium to a negative, uh, st- uh, speaking point on assistant coaches, just uh, flowing, you know, flowing seamlessly here through this podcast. Uh, Baylor finds himself in <laughs> in another uh, negative headline situation where their uh, assistant strength training coach, I believe, Brandon Washington, uh, you know, got got picked up in due to his uh, participation in a prostitution sting, I believe. So of course he was immediately fired. Um, you know, this is, you know, I guess maybe it'd be one thing if it was like grand theft auto or some, some crime that didn't involve exploitation of women, but geez, <laughs> Rob, I mean, how, <laughs> what are we, what are we coming to with well, Baylor here? Yeah. I mean, it, it, obviously it's not, the worst thing Baylor has done in a year. Um, it's it's not good though when you combine it with everything else. You got to think Matt Rule right now. His head is just like in his hands. Like how does this happen now? Uh, yeah. You know, at this school after I take over. Uh, my question to, to our boy though is how? I mean, I'm not judging his extracurricular activities, whatever. Uh, but Waco is not a large town. How are you going to get busted in a prostitution? St- thing in Waco, Texas. At least like go over to Dallas or something. People are going to see you. Like you are a recognizable figure, right? In Waco, you think. I've been to Waco. It's not a big town. The only thing there is George's chicken fried steak or something, really, in a football wow. stadium. <laughs> big shout. Um, that place is actually pretty good though. I respect the George's uh, as, as now, sleepy as Waco the, can I, be. Well, you know, let, let's not give him too much credit. I think I think the owner of George's uh, really put himself out there when Bryles got fired in in uh, heavy support of him. Although I don't want to. Oh, see. was he one of those? Oh no, he was one of those guys, huh? I don't, I don't want to. Although I don't I don't want to go on record as saying that's official. But you know, th- I mean, it just, it just goes to show, like it, everything. Just this conversation in general, every single thing that we talk about, as far as Baylor's concerned, you got to tiptoe, you got to walk on eggshells. I mean, there's there's nothing. You know, there's just there's just no safe way to talk about that program <laughs> in recent in recent days. It seems like I mean, now listen. Here's 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 what we can say about them. They did a fantastic job salvaging their 2017 recruiting class this year, given given the circumstances they were under. And when you look at what happened with the uh, the recent Big 12 ruling about what's going to happen, you know, their penalty uh, from the Big 12 is a I believe a, a 25% reduction in their uh, their revenue, sh- their conference revenue sharing from you know TV or, wh- or whatever situation they have. Yeah, hold on, can we talk about that for a second? Isn't that like a sure. weird thing too? The way that they phrase that, it's like until you can show us, it's like grounding your son, or it's like you know you're in trouble until you can show me you know how to do things the right way. Where it's like whenever you just get bored of having him around, you can let him out of his room. There was, isn't that kind of the, the contingency here with Baylor in the statement? It's like until you can show us you have institutional control, 
How do you prove something like that? Like they're just going to withhold this money until they decide you can have it back? Uh well, yeah, I mean, well, the whole thing, the whole thing's been a gray area. And I, and I think when, you know, when this, when everything for, you know, when everything hit the fan the it, in the beginning with Baylor and, you know, me and Woody had talked about it back in the days when it was just the old Texas roundup and I wasn't a, a full-fledged host of the podcast, you know, I, my initial, my initial reaction was always that everything that happened with Baylor, uh, you know, even though football players were at the center of the focus of everything that was going on everything was largely criminal and not representative of the football program itself so much as, you know, I mean, I mean, that's that the behavior that was displayed there and things that have happened was, was not, you know, unique to uh, the context of football. I mean, it was criminal behavior period point blank. It doesn't matter if we're talking about a football player, regular person inside or outside of a football program, you know, obviously Art Bryles, uh, you know, role in all that was, you know, was, uh, another subject that was tied to it, but you know, ev- everything they, they've tried to shake the things out, uh, I guess to their credit in terms of firing necessary people, even though it's been a slow and drawn out process and probably not as swift as people would have expected. Um, you know, this is a, this is another situation where it's like how, you know, I've heard people talk about like they, you know, the pun, whatever the punishment was going to be from the Big 12 or the NCAA, it couldn't have been as severe as what happened at Penn State because apparently that was uh, too severe of a punishment in hindsight, which I'm not sure how we came to that conclusion either. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I, there's no, there's been no right answer so far, and there's been no answer that anybody's been happy with, and the pro, and everything that keeps continuing to happen where more problems occur and surface. Uh, doesn't help things either. I mean, there, there's just, you know, I, 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 the short answer to what you asked is, yeah, I mean, they can show that they have institutional control when we can make it six months without something like this happening again, for one. Uh, that might be a good place to start. But, you know, I mean, the, the problem is, is Baylor's not shutting its doors as a university. I, I mean, you have to think that if something more severe was going to happen to the football program, it may or may not have probably happened by now. So, you know the whole thing the whole thing is a weird gray area where how much is too much and how much isn't enough you know yeah it, it's it's one of those situations like it was at Penn State where the acts are reprehensible the cover up is even worse uh the coaches are punished but the reason that they come back and say it was too stiff a penalty in Penn State is because you're punishing kids that didn't have anything to do with it and it, it's a whole weird thing and like you said there's no right i mean you're, tip, you're tiptoeing around on eggshells because it is such a just a bad situation there, and there's so many things bigger than football. Uh, it almost feels crappy to sit here and talk about the recruiting class when something so you know actually evil uh, happened there. Um, so well, maybe we should just kind of move off this subject. Well, just just to you know, just so we can put a positive uh, take on this. I mean, we we should say it. I think it does bear mentioning that a lot of the you know, I like I said, I thought that they finished with a pretty strong recruiting class given the circumstances, and a lot of the kids that they ended up pulling into that recruiting class, you know, were guys that were straight up overlooked by a lot of other programs in state that obviously had talent that were obviously capable of playing Division One football and weren't getting the opportunities, uh, you know, that they were given you know, now that, now that they've, you know, signed their letters of intent to, to play with Baylor, you know, and assuming that, you know, assuming that things write themselves at some point and if by, by all accounts, it seems like Matt rule is, uh, you know, this situation aside, I mean, him, him as a head coach, uh, and, and his role in things is, you know, there's nothing to be concerned about so far. I mean, and if he continues to do the same thing and, 
you know, and Baylor can at least kind of stay the course and, you know, and give those types of kids opportunities and, you know, then you're right. Then it does, it, we're, as long as we're not punishing the future for the mistakes of the past because these kids had no role in it, you know, that's probably the best thing that we can say about it. So I want to call when you had, when you were in your Texas roundup phase as your 205 live phase, you know, where you're changing the color of the ropes <laughs> to bring in Nick Kruger. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, you know, as my wife might tell you, I'm approaching the 205 weight class here these days. So <laughs> be a lot more accurate. Than, You're not going to uh, be a cruiserweight anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, so I might have to cut weight for these podcasts here going forward. But uh, that's that's something that I can work on during camp season here. So, so moving forward, uh, some something that's another kind of funky topic here. So. Uh, one game into his career as offensive coordinator, uh, Steve Sarkeesian, famed offensive coordinator for the Alabama Crimson Tide, uh, and moving on to greener pastures already to the Super Bowl near champion uh, Atlanta Falcons. There, so and then hey, listen, hey, I'll, I'll I'll let you speak first on this, but I just got to say this is really it's I've got the feeling that things are starting to get screwy in Alabama, and I'll let you take it from there. Imagine telling somebody that you were a coach at Alabama, but you never won a game. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah i used to coach there really yeah and i went over uh, yeah <laughs> excuse me uh, i don't know i mean i guess sarkeesian i can understand working in where we work how you would not want to if you had the opportunity to coach in the nfl to cut out recruiting and not have to deal with that i would do that um it does not seem like a particularly fun job uh we've discussed many times here how the rug can be pulled out from under you it's unpredictable it's pandering it's you know at certain times uh kind of feels embarrassing um i could see why you would want to coach in the nfl but what if he fails there right like uh, what's the resume then one lost game at alabama and uh, the whole disaster at usc where you know he had some issues there that you know obviously uh, disease issues that aren't great but doesn't look great on the resume either i'm not sure i'm with you on the foundation you call, of Alabama. You call them disease issues well <laughs> yeah, alcoholism is a disease my friend right it's not it's not i, I mean it's not a choice to be an alcoholic as me i well i listen i'm that that's a I guess i suppose i suppose that you know i don't want to i don't want to downplay the issue i suppose that's up for debate as far as it relates to, you know, how much of a parachute we, you know, how much of a leash we give him. I, I think it's crazy though, that like, like you said, given that, given that resume, he, I mean, because he was on the open, how long was he on the open market before he, he landed softly at Alabama and, in some kind of dream scenario, uh, f- seemingly for him. And then he's out the door after one game. How did that happen? Like, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, either there had to be a, a, a situation where Saban kind of pushed him towards the door, and now we'll never know if that's true or not, or B, he just really, really does not want to recruit. Those are the but, only two but, things I can come up with. But how did how did an NFL team not how did an, how I mean was the NFL ever in the conversation with him before he landed at Alabama when he was on the you know when he was. Uh, you know, enjoying his severance, presumably for for six months or whatever the no, case was. You know how these places operate. A lot of businesses operate like that. Like as soon as Alabama took him, and Alabama, rightly or wrongly, from the outside, is viewed as this like good old boy Southern program that isn't on sanctions and like whatever. They kind of took the USC disaster stink off of him, right? And maybe that only took one game. And now he's viewed as a hireable coach. He hasn't changed at all. Like he was. 
you know, one game, coaching one game in Alabama doesn't change who you are, good or bad. It doesn't matter. But it makes the PR nightmare a little bit less that he's been at Alabama and now an NFL team can take him. So if an NFL team had dreams of taking Steve Sarkeesian before and was worried about the PR hit, now, you know, Alabama's taken that and now they can take him and not have to worry about it. Well, I'm saying that the stink is still on him because there's got to be a reason why his tenure in Alabama only lasted one game. I mean, if you're if you're looking at a situation where he was dismissed from from the the previous job that he had before the one that he cut and ran for after one game for whatever the case may be, and you know whatever whatever the details are surrounding that, the fa- you know when you look at it the black and white of it, I mean that kind of seems like an O for two situation in the past two jobs and kind of like a weird sort of circumstance. So I I don't know why that would make him an attractive option for for a team that just was in the Super Bowl last week. Yeah, no. It, it's even wild that they the Falcons are starting to fire people and I know I don't want to get too far away from the basis of this podcast, but what is going on? Like since when did the Falcons become a Super Bowl winner bust mentality team here? Hey, just chill, man. You guys did pretty good. Besides the well, last drive of the most important game of the year. Yeah. You guys did pretty well, okay. Well, I suppose maybe that's the maybe maybe the parallels between them and Alabama are 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 pretty you know, a lot closer than we realized because so, so going back to, you know, the previous theme of assistant coaches leaving, we saw Mario Cristobal take off towards uh, Oregon, correct? Mm-hmm, which is um, about as far away from his Florida recruiting base as you can possibly get. So that's and, also and a strange he, but, move. But, a, but, a, but he was, uh, I mean, he's, a, he's, an important, he's an important figure there at Alabama from a, from a recruiting standpoint. We saw, we saw everything happen with Lane Kiffin. There was kind of a strange exit for him, uh, you know, Maybe maybe we may or may not have heard some whispers as to what the reasoning went on behind there, but now we have Steve Sarkeesian in 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 one day out the next. I mean, what that I'm starting to get the feeling, you know, going going back to my setup to this topic, I'm starting to get the feeling that, you know, despite Alabama winning on the recruiting front this this past year, I, I am is is Nick Saban, you know, holding on a little too tightly to things here and is starting to drive some wedges in some places because that's kind of how it's starting to feel for me. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only way to really know that is if they like come out and don't win the SEC. Uh, but until they don't do that, I've learned that you know Saban's always going to find a way. Can we talk about Kiffin? Have you seen his like Instagram stuff going on? He's in Boca partying with coeds. He's got. What do you expect? He, he, well, he of is, course he is. He is my everything, man. I mean, that guy is like, <laughs> boy, he is just living the life. You know, he's the only. The only thing that I've seen from Lane Kiffin on social media was a picture of him in like one of our, you know, the athletic gear polos that we always get that are always made out of that like nylon yeah. polyester. And he just kind of kind of looked a little frumpy in that. But I mean, can we get this can we get this guy a Tommy Bahama FAU uh button-down shirt for him to be sipping drinks out of a coconut, you know, while he's doing while he's living that lifestyle at the at the Boca Beach and Country Club? Please? Kiffin also, you know, so these co-eds have got the pictures of him posing with him on their Instagrams, and of course that makes their way to the big lead. But no matter what the situation is, whether it's posing with co-eds or like a team photo, Kiffin has always got this look on his face like you went you went to the restroom and he ate like, you know, half of your cheeseburger off your plate while you were gone. <laughs> It's like he, this, prob- he probably has. Yeah, it's like this smirk, like, <laughs> you know, I know you know, but do you know that I know you know? It's really, I, I do love that guy, man. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, all right, well, so so that's a TBD situation. We'll see how everything shakes out there, and, and just kind of wrapping up our... Maybe we should maybe we should name our opening five. Let's call them the Power Five, right? The, I like our that. Opening five. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, geez, I mean, we're a college football podcast for crying out loud, sort of. Um, so, so our our fifth 
our fifth topic here uh, in the Power Five, and something that I know you've been itching to talk about, is the LSU uh, seemingly racial tension with black coaches in New Orleans. And uh, Rob, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> but how about, let's talk about how Woody puts this on the rundown, and like you know, let's let's drop a racially sensitive topic on the podcast rundown, and then not host the show. <laughs> Good I luck, know, guys. I know. Um, That's what I'm saying. You know, the thing is with this, and you know, you I've read it on the Big Lead. I read it in other places. We never actually reported on it. But there are reports out there that uh, a group of black coaches in Louisiana ha- want to blackball LSU because of something, but it's all based in rumor and innuendo. So I feel a little bit uncomfortable talking too much about it, other than the fact that that is a story out there. Uh, you can find it on the big lead if you'd like to find it and read it. Um, I don't, I, I, I just, A, I don't know if it's true. Um, Woody did tell me that in his calls before he left town that he kind of felt like, he made some calls around and it kind of was starting to sound like it was one guy trying to push an agenda maybe and trying to get everybody else rallied up. But I don't, I don't really know what's going on there, you know? So it's, it's far be it for me to be like, well, here's the thing that's happening. Uh, when my only window into it is I read it on the big lead. I, I don't think it would be effective if it did happen for very long. I mean, look at the history of that state and look at the players that have gotten out of that state. If you take out this year with the coaching change and less miles, it is very, very, very hard to pull a player out of Louisiana. Uh, obviously, KU well, has done that. Yeah, tell that to Kansas. <laughs> yeah, no, obviously, Kansas has done that. But I, it just feels so irresponsible to me to speculate too much about what's going on without knowing, you know, anything that's happening here other than reading that big league story that was anonymously sourced, right? It's not even like they had coaches on the record saying, here's the thing that's happening. Right. Well, I mean, do you think that it's a coincidence that Kansas pulled those kids, decommitted kids from LSU, pulled them and got and got their commitments do you think it's like a power play uh by the city of new orleans to kind of uh you know in this in this uh war of whatever's happening between well, I, mean, the two? I don't think that like i don't think that anybody sat these three kids down and said commit to a two-win school just to prove a point right so i don't want to take like all credit away from kansas either because they've done some work there i mean even if there is something happening there where everybody's mad at Orgeron for whatever reason it's still amazing that Kansas was the landing spot, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, I, I, unless they were like, you know, let's really make a statement, commit to Kansas. But, I, you know, I think that KU staff's a little too smart to be used like a pawn like that, knowing the guys that I know there. Uh, it just, I mean, surely there's something happening there because, you know, this isn't just something that happens for no reason. Uh, I just don't want to get too irresponsible and speculate what that something might be, you know? Well, you know, I, I just, I'm a big fan of conspiracy theory, so I will, I will fuel that fire uh rightfully or wrongfully what, hold on what, what is what is your what is your favorite conspiracy theory uh no 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 we're not <laughs> we're not going to talk about that on this show well mine mine, mine is that there's a secret city built under the denver airport have you read about this one no but i'd love to hear about oh, it. oh man you you man you really ought to you really ought to go check out the wikipedia it goes very deep there are murals involved and well, who's supposed to live there uh it's like a high it's like a government agency place man um I don't know if I believe this because I'm not really a conspiracy theorist, but it is a very, very fun one to read about. Uh, See, here's the thing, though: if you have if you have that sort of scenario at an airport, directly under an airport, is that what we're talking about? That's what we're talking about here. I'm gonna. I mean, don't uh, you up Wikipedia? Don't don't you think somebody at some point would have like at some point kind of just stumbled their way into whatever door you need to get to to get to that said city? It, there's also like we need to put this up on the podcast Twitter account, like a very weird like Illuminati uh, 
mural in the airport that I've actually seen with my own eyes. Like, look on the Wikipedia here. There's the whole thing with conspiracies and controversy. I can't, I can't recommend the Denver airport enough. That's, you know, I love the, and the thing that I love most about the Denver airport, and I may have said this before on the, on this podcast is the bathrooms smell like fresh Alpine, which is, which is obviously great for the Denver theme. But when you're talking about airport bathrooms, when you know, there's a lot of things going on, especially on the men's side of things, uh, in various airport bathrooms. And when you have one that consistently smells clean, uh, you know, I'll take it every day. I'll take that. Let me read you the first the first uh, paragraph off this thing. There are several conspiracy okay. theories relating to the airport's design and construction, such as the runways being laid out in a shape similar to a swastika. Murals painted in the baggage claim area uh, have been claimed to contain themes referring to future military oppression and a one-world government. However, the artist, Leo Tagamaba, says that the murals titled Peace and Harmony with Nature and Children of the World Dream and Peace depict man-made environmental destructions and genocide along with humanity coming together to heal nature and live at peace, which is the most Colorado thing ever. Anyway, the long and short of this is that like when they were constructing the airport, I guess they stopped construction because they screwed something up and then built a new airport over the top of what they'd already started. So people wow. think that like the New World Order uh, is meeting underneath the Denver airport. You really ought to dig into uh... it. Man, see that? See that's a really good conspiracy theory. It's a good one. Uh, and you should I, see the murals, man. The murals are weird. So I, weird. I just pulled up the Denver airport on Google Maps just to verify about the runway situation, and yeah, it's it's got the roots of that. So I I could see where they're. I guess they're going with that. That's, but it's also an effective way of designing yeah, runways I, I, too. Yeah, so yeah, no, no doubt about it. Uh, just a weird coincidence there. Okay, so we're, so we're way off topic now, so let's get back onto it, I guess, uh, because now we're to the goofy part of the show anyway, as if the rest of it hasn't been already. Um, do you want to call up the tweet of the week? You subtweet people all the time. You're nothing but an embarrassment. I've got it. I've got it right here. And I think this might be our first second time appearance on Tweet of the Week. And it is from uh, Duke assistant head or assistant coach Derek Jones, who makes a real habit of lecturing kids on Twitter about what to wear and how Duke is different. And they will not recruit you if you use a curse. And listen here, Sonny, if you have gold teeth, we will not take your commitment here at Duke University because we are a standard of higher education. So anyway, okay. our boy Derek Jones on February 7th, uh, this time tweets, if you're a college prospect, this will get you stereotyped and blacked out before you ever get to say a word. I'm just the messenger. And it is a picture of like <laughs> sagging jeans to the point of like crisscross. Like these kids are wearing the jeans like on to their kneecaps pretty much. Like yeah, maybe it's a, like it's a really old picture. Low yeah. thigh. And my take is, you know, other people's takes too, if you click, there are a lot of responses. It's like, what year are you recruiting in? I am in a lot of high schools in a lot of different demographic areas, and I've never walked into a high school in the last decade and seen anybody dressed like that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, do, double double check real quick and make sure that's not like a retweet of his from, you know, you know, from 2008 or something like that. Because <laughs> yes. it might be. It's, I mean, this isn't the era of crisscross. And, and I mean, there are people behind him like, preach, coach. Pull up your I, pants. I got, listen, Nobody wears it, their it, pants it, like that. Yeah, you're right. You're right. No, if anything, if anything, we've come full circle with uh, with shorts and pants styles. Uh, for you know, from the youth of America. I mean, we're going back. You know, look, look at look at uh, some college basketball games. Look at some NBA games. We're getting back to the shorts. Well, stopping well above the knee. Uh, the baggy the baggy look has gone far by the wayside. Yeah. Uh, tight. You know, tight sweatpants. You know, look at look at the way uh, our boy Russell Westbrook dresses. You know, guys guys of his ilk uh, in the public eye that the you know that the kids look up to. It's, we're not we're not in that 
We're not in that anymore. No, this is That's not, not a thing it. that exists in the world. Like, I, it's just not. And he's doing this to well, a, appeal think, to parents I, I, and b appeal to other coaches. So on Twitter, they'll be like, "Yeah, coach, preach. You're really in this yeah. for the kids." And it's like, "No, nah, you're right." Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think I think some people still dress like that, but they but the world has passed them by for sure, and they're definitely not getting recruited to play college football. In in the know. photo that he has shared with the guys sagging, one of them is wearing Jinkos. You can see the logo. So like they've got the giant pocket, and if you zoom in, you can see the J on the on the pants. Who, when was the last time somebody wore Jinkos? Who is I this guy? Jink- I, uh, listen, I famously made my mom go to Ross and buy me the Markdown Jinkos uh, from from when I was in middle school. Yeah, in what year? In what year? With the gen- well, that was middle school, so that was pre. That I I started middle. I gra- I, it, it was. It had to have been ninety nine. Maybe it's this coach, man. I'm telling you, it just <laughs> everybody sees through your crap, man. Like, just, it's, it's ridiculous. It really My Jenkos, I had two pairs of Jenkos. One, one was just a normal pair of jeans that had like a, a like a, uh, what, like a calligraphy version of the J patch oh, on the pocket. The other one was, uh, the other one, which was like my, you know, my prize pair had like a blue racing stripe down the side that had kind of like. Uh, kind of like the design, you know, like where we see our volume on the on the sound recorder. Yeah, how, yeah, yeah. It kind of looked like that down the side <laughs> of the jeans, uh, with with a snake, a snake and a crown in the shape of a J. I was real. You want you didn't want to mess with me. Were, were I you, was real. I was trying real hard back then. Be honest with me, Nick. Were you in a ska band? No, I wish I was. I did play trumpet. No, yeah, you you're know, perfect for it. In band, I should I should have been I, uh, that that. Pass me by. Also, I don't. My head is way too big for fedoras, so I can't. I never had Jinkos, but I went through a really embarrassing phase where I was wearing a lot of sweater vests. Um, I was a. I mean, I was a different kind of loser. Uh, <laughs> but man, I don't. I see some of those pictures. I had a goatee for a while. I. Ooh, it was a real bad look. Sweater sweater vests weren't, weren't really a thing for me growing up in Florida. There wasn't uh, a lot of practicality for that. It was just. But, uh, it was just bad, 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 bad. All right, moving on. Uh, I guess we don't have a why you always lying this week, right? Uh, well, you know, we'll we'll see what the re- re- what the reviews are from this show after we post it. Maybe somebody will be calling us out on <laughs> something we said it incorrectly. But but yeah, we'll we'll bypass that because we're kind of running long anyway. So let's uh, let's see. With fi- final segment of the show, everybody's favorite. We all know rants and recommendations. I already gave a pseudo recommendation, but I see your. Uh, you're down for one as well. Yeah, this is where we really miss Woody, though. He really brings it in the rants and recommendations because his anger is never manufactured. He is always genuinely angry at somebody about something small. Uh, so this is where we miss him. I don't really have a rant. I did watch Girl on a Train last night, and I know a lot of people yeah. read that book years ago and raved about it, so I'm late to this party. It's Have you yeah. seen it? Listen, you know, I came this, I, I was this close. Uh, on our way home from New York, I stopped in an airport bookstore in Chicago, and I came this close to buying it. And then I was like, and then I remembered, oh yeah, I don't actually really have time to read books. So, I, but it was on, it was not, it was it, it, out of the 25 New York bestsellers rack, it was on there twice for some I mean, reason. So it, it, it was good. I can't speak to the book. I mean, the movie, you know, it's one of these, it's one of these psychological thrillers and twists, but it's really done well. You know, some of those movies can fall so flat when they're written yeah. poorly. This one's written well. And you know, it's got all your, 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 your hallmarks. It's got your adultery. It's got your murder. It's got your alcoholism. Oh. And, you know, it, it checks every box uh you know yeah. it's got your delusions it's got your affairs it, it, it's good it's real good uh, i would recommend watching it but i can't say too much without giving it away 
Well, all right then. I guess I guess we'll have to red box that. It's got uh, yeah. It's it's got your unwanted pregnancies. I mean, it is big time. Okay. All right. So so I'll put that on the to do list because uh, you know as I mentioned, I try to watch you know I try to get my movie watching in while I'm doing other things. So hopefully that kind of can be one of the things on my next list. Do you uh, have anything? Think, yeah. You know, I will say this. I am looking forward to the return of The Walking Dead uh, at some point. I guess this is my recommendation and rant uh, because you know the the rant is here we are in a kind of a second season out of the six where, you know, we've just come up against a larger community and we've kind of butted heads with them. And I'm presumably by the end of the season, they'll beat them. I'm wondering, you know, at some point we've got to, we've got to get to a place with that show where we've gotten to a more global uh, storyline, like maybe sort of a resident evil sort of thing, because I don't think we've ever gotten any sort of explanation as to how the zombies actually even started uh, to begin with. So maybe we'll gear things towards that direction. Yeah, you know, I watched the first season and then kind of trailed off after that. Uh, yeah. I had read somewhere that, like, in that universe, that there's no such thing as zombies, and that's why you never hear the word zombie. Like, that's not like a thing that like people know what they are in in that universe. I guess that's well, they all call them different things. Yeah, but the I mean, word zombie well. doesn't exist in that universe. I read that somewhere. Right. That was interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's not the first. Uh, First kind of show to use that trope. But anyway, so we'll see what happens there. But also, of course, uh, as you and I well know, Elimination Chamber uh, coming up on Sunday as well. This is our designated wrestling portion of the podcast. Uh, do you have a prediction for the main event? Boy, they've got, they're going to get the title off Cena, I think. Because I can't imagine. All right. I'm going to really dork out here. So I watched SmackDown on Tuesday. And they yes. gave away Orton versus Cena. Now, if that was right. ever going to be that, – that was the main event of SmackDown. Now, if that was ever going to be the main event of WrestleMania, they would not have had that match on SmackDown. Uh, there's no way. I think they're going to put the no, title I, on Wyatt. I think we're going to build Orton Wyatt as the main event of WrestleMania, as crazy as that sounds. Yeah. No, that's what a friend of the podcast and new roommate of mine, Alex Kruger, also suggested. Uh, I think that's an agreeable uh, sort of trajectory, storyline-wise. Is that a big enough match, though? Is it a big enough match to headline WrestleMania? Well, listen, here, here's the here's the deal. We really got to give Bray some credit for all the work that he's been trying to do, despite the way that they've constantly taken his legs out from underneath him over the past you know three or four years. Uh, they just really, you know, for my money, they just really have never given him, uh, you know, the the full, you know, the the full kind of exposure or development that that he's needed, despite his, you know, uh, well, his strong work uh, year after year. So, so hopefully that leads up to a big moment for him. You know, that's that's kind of where I stand on that. So I wouldn't be disappointed for that. All right. Before we go, we should note that highly overrated Woody Womack uh, can't even find his way to a podcast this week. Sad. Sad. It is sad. Uh, complete, a complete and total loser. <laughs> people are saying that this was the the best listened to episode of the podcast. A lot of people are telling people me, are "Hey Rob, that. why don't you and Nick host the podcast by yourself?" People are telling me, "Hey, we like it a lot better without Woody." Uh, people are saying that. I just, yeah, I know. I just listened to the podcast myself, and I I'm 100 percent in agreement with that as well. So. Yeah, I know it. You All know right, it. Woody. Everyone knows it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Woody, safe travels. Uh, hopefully you're back next week. Rob, fantastic job today. You and me really, you know, you know, we really steered this ship through some stormy waters and did a fantastic job, in my opinion. No so kidding. Great job. All right, we'll see you soon, Nick.